to a new history of old San Antonio. Episode 7, the capital of Texas. I'm Brandon Seal. On my city, San Antonio, tonight I'm looking at your lovely life. In 1767, as the Marquis de Rubí put the finishing touches on his survey of the new Spanish frontier, he struggled to find anything good to say. Northern New Spain was a money pit. Most of the missions were jokes. The East Texas mission still hadn't converted a single Indian, and the East Texas Presidio was too sad to even be funny. With a garrison of 61 men, it had only two muskets and not a single uniform. The entire province, according to Ruby, quote, should be returned to the Indians, end quote. With one exception. San Antonio, he noted, was the, quote, only good thing this province has, end quote. By 1767, San Antonio's missions were the jewels in the Franciscan crown, even as they continued to post a dubious return on investment. But collectively, they had converted 4,400 Indians since 1718. And some of these mission Indians had made the jump into civilian Spanish society through intermarriage, comprising as much as 15% of the 2,060 vecinos in San Antonio in 1767. And at Rubí's recommendation, in 1772, all of the East Texas missions, presidios, and civilian settlers were relocated to the San Antonio area, marking the third time now that San Antonio had absorbed the East Texas missions. San Antonio's presidial force also shined by comparison to anything else in northern New Spain. Comprised of only 22 men, it was in good order, with provisions, uniform, and discipline, and actively complemented by the mounted citizen compañías volantes, light cavalry, which when mobilized could number as many as 350 men. This mounted militia supported Rubí's characterization of San Antonians as comparatively, quote, rich, given that apparently one-fifth of the population could afford to arm themselves, provision themselves, and supply a string of horses for military excursions deep into Indian territory, as we saw in the previous episode. And indeed, their new Presidio captain, Luis Antonio Menchaca, nephew of the long-serving Toribio de Urrutia, who died after 23 years as captain in 1763, would himself die the richest man in the province, with wide-ranging land and stock holdings. The Spanish king himself had ordered the Marquis to undertake his inspection of the frontier following the transfer of Louisiana to Spain at the end of the French and Indian War in 1763. The French threat that had been the original justification for San Antonio's existence was now gone, Yet by 1767, San Antonio had survived plagues, natural disasters, and Indian attacks for half a century now. Moreover, with their constant warring against the Apaches and Comanches, San Antonians had actually pushed the borders of New Spain further out than anyone back on the continent had appreciated. San Antonio was becoming a not insignificant part of Spain's colonial strategy. So when Rubí recommended that San Fernando de Bejar, the most organized of the many communities that made up San Antonio, be made the capital of Texas, he was only recognizing in law something that had already become true in fact. This new focus of resources on San Antonio as the capital of Texas produced a major population boom over the next decade. By 1779, more than 2,500 souls would call the San Antonio River Valley home, with the civilian town growing to 1,203 vecinos and 294 households, a 40% increase over a nine-year period. One-third of these 1,203 vecinos were native San Antonians, with another third born in Coahuila or Nuevo León and the balance hailing from elsewhere. 53 of the 294 civilian households were headed by women. Put differently, some one-sixth of the women in San Antonio were widows. Many of their husbands had fallen in the never-ending Indian Wars, and many others to the myriad other dangers of hacking out a living from the wilderness. Under Spanish law, women could inherit and manage property of their own, and some of them in San Antonio did so quite successfully. Two of the ten largest cattle owners in San Antonio in 1779 were women. It was still, of course, a patriarchal society, Marriages were often arranged to cement social and commercial alliances. Dowries were common, and a necessity to ensure the marriage of a daughter to a promising young man. But it also had the happy side effect of softening Spain's rigid caste system, 
and rewarding ambitious, upwardly mobile men who could convince a future father-in-law of his potential. Social life in San Antonio revolved around the agricultural calendar. Our friend, Professor Jesus de la Teja, lays out what a typical year looked like in 1770 San Antonio. January and February would have been dedicated to repairing buildings, mending fences, and working livestock. March, April, and May to planting. June and July to harvesting the first crop and planting the second. August and September to travel to the annual fair in Saltillo, with plenty of time to be back in October and November to harvest the second crop. In December, the plazas would fill with vendors and the town would busy itself with bullfights, rodeos, and fandangos, bookended by the feast day of the Virgin of Guadalupe around December 12th and the Festival of the Three Kings in early January. It was both a great honor and a great burden to be the local citizen chosen to underwrite these festivals each December, but one actively sought by the town's most prominent men, particularly those vying for city council seats in the end-of-year elections. San Antonio had always been a military city, and the Presidio remained the most important institution in town following Rubí's consolidation of Spanish forces into San Antonio. By 1781, the local Presidio force had grown to almost 100 men. Their dependents, some 200 in all, accounted for almost one-fifth of the area's population. Other professions in San Antonio in 1780 included two blacksmiths, four fishermen, six teamsters, six shoemakers, and nine tailors. Ten self-identified merchants vied for the Presidio's coveted supply contracts and provisioned the town with basic necessities like textiles, tobacco, and other dry goods. Sixty heads of household listed their primary occupation as farmers, and pretty much everyone farmed at least enough to feed themselves. Farming had experienced a mild boom after 1761 when significant new lands were opened up in two areas, one north of modern-day Navarro Street and two into the horseshoe bend of the San Antonio River. Farming expanded again in 1776, when private San Antonians took the initiative to open the Upper Labor Farm, irrigating the land south of the headwaters of the San Antonio River, down the future North St. Mary Street, then west over to San Pedro Springs. This was a major private infrastructure project built without a single dollar from the Spanish government, and it was led by many old names we're already familiar with, Leal, Arrocha, Curbelo, and Menchaca. But there were some new names as well, names that our San Antonio listeners should start to recognize. Fernando Veramendi was a Spaniard born in Pamplona in 1743 who arrived to Texas in 1770. He must have arrived with some capital because he set himself up immediately as a merchant in town, eventually getting into money lending and, like all great Texas men of wealth, land speculation. Yet it went well for him. By 1776, he had married a Canary Islander, and by 1779, he was a city councilman. His life was cut short in 1783 by Apaches, yet he had laid the foundation for a minor San Antonio dynasty that would go on to build the most opulent house in the province, the so-called Veramendi Palace, which stood in downtown San Antonio until the 20th century. The man who actually constructed the Veramendi Palace would go on to great success himself. Bartolomé Seguin arrived in San Antonio in the 1740s and listed his occupation as a carpenter. His trade clearly expanded into what we might call a general contractor, and by the 1750s he had married the daughter of a prosperous old vecino who came to San Antonio in the 1720s. By the 1770s, he was regularly being elected to the city council. Over time, he would transition into the livestock business, primarily as a cattle buyer and trail driver, driving his herds regularly to markets in Saltillo and Louisiana, though not always within the limits of the law, as we'll see later. José Macario Zambrano arrived around 1770, and like Veramendi and Seguin, married well, into old vecino and Canary Island bloodlines. Zambrano went into the stock-raising business, and owned some 300 mama cows by the late 1770s. His profits he recycled back into buying land, particularly irrigated land in the new upper labor farm, in which he would ultimately become the largest single landowner. By 1791, we see him suing the Presidio commander in court for refusing to buy corn from him, even though his price was higher than the other suppliers. The expectation of preferential treatment, a sure sign of his position and power by the time. And in 1777, a Corsican merchant set up shop just off the Plaza de las Islas in San Antonio and began hawking his wares, primarily textiles. Ángel Navarro would go on to market success as a merchant, 
and be a fixture on the city council from 1781 until 1807. He would marry Maria Josefa Ruiz, his daughter would marry the son of Fernando Veramendi, and his four sons would go on to figure prominently in San Antonio's history. San Antonio was becoming a land of initiative and opportunity. The vast majority of San Antonio's heads of household were merchants, tradesmen, or farmers working for their own account. They were independent, free men and women with some small measure of control over their own destiny. 127 of these 294 heads of household had enough property to pay taxes in 1779, a dubious honor perhaps, but a much larger proportional tax base than was typical in New Spain. And interestingly, none of the top six landowners in 1779 were Canary Islanders, and only two of the largest landowners had been in San Antonio for more than 20 years. New arrivals were bringing with them new money, new energy, and social mobility. Notwithstanding these promising signs of economic development and Ruby's description of San Antonians as comparatively rich, the town did little to impress a follow-up royal inspection in 1778. Indeed, the one word that both of the leaders of this tour used to describe the community was miserable. In May of 1776, General Teodoro de Croix was appointed Comandante of the Internal Provinces, a sort of super-governor for all of the provinces of northern New Spain. In 1778, he was dispatched on a mission to assess the effectiveness of the Marquis de Rubí's reforms made 15 years earlier, and accompanied by a Franciscan observer, Father Juan Agustín de Morfi. Echoing the observations of many who had preceded them, they were moved by the physical beauty of San Antonio's setting. Quote, I do not hesitate to state that in all of New Spain, there is not a place more beautiful or more well-equipped to become a great city than the site occupied by San Fernando and the Presidio of San Antonio de Bejar. End quote. And yet the beauty of the site, in their opinion, stood in stark contrast to the quality of its inhabitants. General de Croix wrote disparagingly about the, quote, ignorant vecinos and their ayuntamiento, which he called the, quote, most ridiculous town council, end quote. He concluded that San Antonio, quote, does not warrant the concern required for its preservation, end quote. Father Morphy described San Antonio contemptibly as composed of 59 small houses of stone and adobe, 79 jacales, and only a few proper homes. And then he got personal. The local vecinos, or residents, he affirmed, were universally, quote, lazy and predisposed towards sin and undeserving of the blessings of this land, end quote. And so let's dig into this, because this is a common refrain from these high-born gachupines forced to spend time amongst our colorful lot of citizen soldiers settling the frontier by force of arms and their own will. General DeCroix and Father Morphy were probably right that San Antonians were, quote, lazy farmers. But why shouldn't they have been? The price for corn was fixed by the Presidio captain each year, meaning margins were limited, and other markets were too far away for San Antonio's produce to compete in, meaning surpluses typically went to waste. Second, although New Spain abounded in land, it took a literal act of the governor, or even viceroy, to get it turned over into private hands. Well-placed Spaniards like General DeCroix could get domains the size of small European nation-states granted to them, Yet despite the obvious availability of land all around them, San Antonians had to wait nearly 20 years for new lands each time they filled up their town lots. And third, let's talk about Spain's mercantile system. The entire Spanish economy was set up to enrich Spaniards and impoverish the colonies. All finished goods were required by law to come from Cadiz in Spain, to Veracruz, from there to Mexico City, from there to Querétaro, from there to Saltillo, and from there to San Antonio, having been marked up and taxed at each stop along the way. And many products were subject to royal monopolies held by politically favored friends of the government, further inflating already inflated prices. Restrained by their own laws from improving their economic lot, San Antonians did what, frankly, I think any of us would have done today. They circumvented those laws. To be precise, they became smugglers. Or rather, maybe we should say they had always been smugglers, going all the way back to Captain Diego Ramon and his carefully orchestrated chicken war in 1719 from episode 2. Smuggling was attractive to San Antonians because they were just a few weeks' journey from the markets of French Louisiana and the Anglo-American colonies, both of which liked nothing more than to trade with Spaniards accustomed to artificially high prices. San Antonians' access to these non-regulated foreign markets was one of the few competitive advantages that they had, 
and served as small recompense for all the dangers of the frontier that they had to endure. And to be clear, we're not talking about smuggling really illicit items here. The most commonly smuggled import was textiles. Coffee and tobacco were probably second and third. Frankly, smuggling is probably too strong of a word. Early San Antonians were just advocates of free trade. And thanks to this circumvention of Spanish trade laws, European goods cost less in San Antonio than they did in Veracruz, and San Antonio merchants became quite successful at the annual fair in Southeo each year, peddling their illicit goods. Envious competitors in neighboring provinces began to lodge formal complaints about the, quote, traitorous competition, end quote, from San Antonio, a sure sign that the San Antonians were making money. But smuggling was still only an option for those with the capital and time to make the journey to New Orleans and then Saltillo and back each year. There was another illicit way that San Antonians found to make money closer to home. Horses and cattle left behind by early Spanish expeditions into Texas had run wild over the last century and grown hardy on the Texas plains. Horses were practically free in San Antonio for the first hundred years of its existence to any man willing to capture and break them. And cattle as well needed only be harvested, typically by one of two methods. The easiest method was to kill them, skin them, tan the hides, and melt the fat into tallow. It was horribly wasteful, but hides and tallow were much easier to transport long distances. These cow killers were called carneadores and plied their trade on horseback with a long hawking knife. In order not to damage the hide, these carneadores would ride alongside a running bovine and cut the tendons on its hind legs, rendering it immobile. Again, brutal I know, yet just another demonstration of San Antonian's skill on horseback. This activity would also contribute to the development of a quite accomplished leatherworking industry. Indeed, the only instance I've come across of a Presidio commander ever declining an offer of supplies was when one such commander refused the offer of leatherworkers from the interior, noting that local leatherworkers were better than anything to be found elsewhere in New Spain. The other, more humane method, I suppose, to make money off of cattle, was to round them up. The saddle horn first appears on Spanish saddles around this time along this same frontier, and the first documented mention of using a lasso to rope cattle appears in San Antonio itself. These two innovations made it possible to run cattle on an open range. It should come as no surprise to anyone, then, that in San Antonio in the 1770s, we witnessed the birth of the great Texas cattle drive, led by men like Bartolomé Seguin and others. Cattle drives east to Louisiana would leave once a month from San Antonio, with as many as 2,000 head at a time. Anyone could round up cattle and entrust them to the drovers, who would return a few months later with precious gold and silver. Indeed, the 1770s and 80s saw a spike in the demand for cattle in the eastern part of North America, as 13 colonies there struggled for independence against their mother country, and innumerable Texas cattle driven by San Antonio drovers made the long march all the way to Spanish Florida to feed those rebel armies. It should be no surprise, then, that the largest single occupation in San Antonio in 1779, 69 out of the 294 households to be precise, was Campista, Stockman, or, if you wish, cowboy. This was the kind of micro-entrepreneurship that the Spanish mercantile system abhorred, and that men like General de Croix and Father Morphy couldn't understand. Rather than appreciating the hard work required to round up wild cattle and land that was still roamed by hostile Indians, the Spaniards viewed these ambitious San Antonians as criminal trespassers, poaching the king's cattle from lands that still technically belonged to the crown. Never mind that San Antonians had for decades been begging the governor, the viceroy, the king, anyone, to patent some of the millions of acres that were sitting idle in the public domain all around them. The crown must be paid for this illegal creation of wealth, the inspectors decided. And so, following his 1778 expedition, General de Croix ordered that all unbranded livestock were to be considered the property of the crown, that the unlicensed killing of the crown's livestock would be treated as a crime, and that anyone exporting cattle from the province was required to pay a substantial tax. Decroix was striking at the very livelihood of the largest single occupation in San Antonio, an occupation that cut across class lines and whose racial composition reflected nearly perfectly the racial composition of the town. And he was doing it on purpose. Worse than confirm the vecinos' fears that government officials were indifferent to their hardships, Decroix's decree seemed to suggest active malice toward them. 
In a fascinating act of defiance and of independence, the most prominent men in San Antonio got together and signed an act of civil protest. Again, the Spaniards couldn't understand this backlash and mocked the San Antonians for their attempts to defend their livelihood. Morphy claimed that San Antonians viewed any attempt at imposing, quote, good order as tyranny, end quote, and any enforcement of the king's laws as persecution. Yet San Antonians weren't intimidated, and even the Texas governor quietly agreed that DeCroix's tax would have the effect of destroying the cattle business in San Antonio. Leal, Curbelo, Travieso, Menchaca, Flores, Veramendi, Zambrano, and others united their voices to protest General DeCroix's decree, tie it up in court, and defy royal authorities to enforce it. And 17 years later, they would win. In 1795, General DeCroix's decree was officially overturned, though to be fair, it had never been fully observed. In an odd way, his attempt to tax the cattle business had brought it out of the shadows and even legitimated it. It also gave San Antonians stronger arguments with the governor to formalize their claims to land that were nominally in the public domain, but which they had worked and defended for decades. From 1760 to 1791, only 14 ranches had been granted in the entire San Antonio area. But after the protests of 1778 and the civil disobedience of the 1780s, the crown finally began to more liberally patent sitios, or pasture lands, the San Antonians, who immediately put them to good use, setting off on another mini-land boom in the 1790s. Interestingly, San Antonians didn't call their rather sizable new sitios latifundios or haciendas. They called them ranchos. As historian Jesús de la Teja reminds us, in Spanish, a rancho historically referred to a, quote, small freehold farm, a rural house or small collection of houses, or a marginal portion of a hacienda rented to an independent livestock raiser, end quote. It implied a landholding that was worked by the owner of the land himself, something that the absentee landowners of the great latifundios in New Spain would never even pretend to do. Again, oddly, Father Morphy mocked San Antonians for their pride in their ranchos. Quote, they only aspire to independence, and they call themselves proprietors of extensive ranchos, none of which are worth a damn. Yet this is their character, this is their passion, and in order to indulge it, they disregard all danger. End quote. In these years, we're starting to see some of the first signs of overt friction between San Antonians and their so-called superiors, and it shouldn't be a surprise as to why. A purebred Spanish bureaucrat couldn't have less in common with a bronze-skinned San Antonian who chose to spend his energies on horseback, braving the hot and dangerous plains chasing wild horses and cattle, and then driving them across rivers, forests, and swamps to return with nefarious goods like cloth, tobacco, and coffee. And so, men like Father Morphy could only mock San Antonians for their passions, as when he observed that, quote, San Antonians only want to go around on horses. They disdain tilling the soil of their own farms, end quote. They made no attempt to understand the challenges of life on the Texas frontier, and they seem to be more interested at times in keeping their subjects poor than in seeing them prosper. In doing so, the royal authorities only demonstrated their own short-sightedness toward these upwardly mobile frontiersmen. Because General DeCroix and Father Morphy and the folks back in Spain should have recognized what commentators as far back as Aristotle have known. Never underestimate what being on a horse does to a man's soul. Because once a man has sat in a saddle, he will never willingly wear a yoke. Thank you for listening. Please go to iTunes or Stitcher and subscribe and leave us a review. Because if everyone who listened to this podcast left a review on iTunes or Stitcher, it would launch San Antonio's story to the top of the charts. For more information and old episodes, you can also visit our website at brandonseal.com. Editing for this episode was provided by Susana Canseco. Sound engineering was performed by Stephen Bennett. A special thanks to my friend Noel McKay for letting us use his song, Mi San Antonio. For this episode, check out a book called Tejano Origins in 18th Century San Antonio. It's a collection of essays edited by Jose Cisneros, Gilberto Hinojosa, and Gerald Pollo that cover wide-ranging aspects of life during this period in San Antonio. It's very readable and informed much of this episode. And let me make a travel recommendation to you. Go to Mexico City, especially if you live in San Antonio. It's so easy to get to. It's 
part European metropolis, part ancient cultural center. You'll appreciate it when you see it. Yet one of the things you should also appreciate was how different it must have felt from San Antonio, even in the 18th century. If you go to the History Museum in the Chapultepec Castle, you can learn more about this and even see one of the flags that Santa Ana captured at the Alamo.